Welcome to The Advocate with your host, Nick Phillips. And now, here's your host, Nick Phillips. Good evening, Cleveland. Nick Phillips with you with another edition of The Advocate. And uh, tonight, as we have been doing for many, many months, been talking about COVID. Returning guest uh, from the Cuyahoga County Board of Health, Kevin Brennan. Uh, He's the communications officer with the Board of Health. Uh, who provides us with updates on what's going on. It's been a while, Kevin, since we've had you on, but thank you for joining us. Absolutely. Thank you for having me, Nick. COVID is still there. The vaccines have been in the news for the last several months. Uh, Here in Cuyahoga County, how are we doing? Uh, Last we talked, we were doing these mass clinics. Are, Are they still on, or what's happening? Well, what we've seen, Nick, is over the course of probably the last three weeks or so, uh, we've seen demand decrease for the vaccination uh, in the area. So um, when we normally ran mass vaccination clinics on both the east side and the west side, uh, at the Word Church in Warrensville Heights and at Tri-C West being the two principal ones, and we have scaled both of those back, and we are now rather than serving potentially one to 2,000 people per day at those uh, mass vaccination clinics, We're focusing on community-based clinics now. Uh, We're partnering with municipalities. We're partnering with faith-based organizations, volunteer groups. And so we're providing settings which have turned out to be anywhere from 100 to about 300 people per day. So as you can tell, that's quite a difference uh, in terms of numbers. But we're still getting participation, so we're encouraged by that. Why do you think we have the drop in enthusiasm and eagerness to get the vaccinations when we just started long lines of people, long lines of cars? Everybody wanted to be uh, vaccinated. Uh, who who are we looking at now, and, and why aren't they interested or lining up? Well, I think part of it is that the vaccine is very widely available now. Um, so I think, you know, in the in the immediate short term here, Uh, It appears like most people who wanted to get it, uh, you know, who have committed to a decision, um, have made that decision and gotten it, whether it was at our mass vaccination clinics at the Wolstein Center, through their health care provider. So people have had a lot of options. As you recall, Nick, when we first started speaking about vaccine in January, it was very difficult to to get enough doses to meet the demand. And now, as I say, we're in sort of the opposite uh, end of the spectrum where uh, the supply is outweighing the demand. But I think from a convenience factor, you know, most places are walk-ins now. So whether you want to go to uh, the grocery store, the drugstore, um, one of our clinics, you know, you can generally walk in. So the availability is so much, uh, you know, wider. What we're finding now is that um, it's become an issue for people who uh, have difficulty managing their time. And I don't mean that from a personal standpoint. What I mean is people who are single parents with children, uh, people who are looking after possibly their elderly uh, parents or, or other family members, and <clears throat> their obligations are such that it's difficult for them to get a vaccine at a convenient time. Um, that's some of the feedback we've gotten. So we're considering potentially running some clinics uh, possibly a little earlier in the morning or a little bit later at night uh, as we go forward just to see if we can capture a few more of those people. Um, but I think you know we're trying to still appeal to people now who may be still in the middle, you know, who um, haven't decided which way they want to go. We just want to make sure the availability is there. So if they do choose to, um, you know, to become proactive and get the vaccine, that we we certainly make it available for them. Since the governor announced his million-dollar lottery for vaccinations, 
Uh, have you seen a, an increase in adult uh, vaccinations at all? What we have seen uh, is a statement from the state which indicated that in the age groups of 16 and older, uh, they have seen a 28% increase in vaccination. So that's, that's significant. Uh, that's, yeah, that certainly is. That's very considerable. So, you know, we'll see how that holds up. Um, we are in week one, right? We'll have our first drawing here uh, coming up soon. So we'll see over the long term how this goes. If I'm not mistaken, I believe they're looking at five drawings, uh, if I'm correct. So, um, you know, we'll see if they can maintain the momentum as we go forward. As we uh, look at a, an imaginary pie chart, for the people who are not yet vaccinated, uh, how many of those or what portion of the pie chart do you think would be people who uh, politically don't want it, uh, legitimately are concerned about the rapidity with which it's been approved, or have medical problems that make them at risk for taking this vaccine? Uh, how does that break down roughly? You know, that's difficult to say because I don't know that we have, you know, very firm numbers here at the county level. What I can say is, you know, we've heard, um, you know, speculation, uh, you know, among items on social media and other places that say, you know, like, let's take, for instance, let's take Ohio. We're in the probably the lower 40 percentile of people in the state who have uh, been who are eligible for vaccine who have gotten the vaccine. I would without looking right at the computer now, I'd say it's probably somewhere around 43%. Um, so of that remaining 57%, it's estimated, um, you know, and again, this is speculation. This is not anything that we came up with or that we can confirm. But as, as high as possibly half of that remaining 57% could be people who are of the mindset that uh, they're not getting the vaccine. And we think that's largely influenced by the politics that have become, uh, unfortunately, a, a component of the pandemic. Um, in terms of people who have medical issues, uh, you know, we're trying to help address that as a lot of other medical providers are also because uh, they're also experiencing the same thing and that some of the mass vax clinics that they were holding are now declining in attendance and they're focusing, uh, you know, a little more on individuals rather than groups. Is there anything we can say about the political arguments that can help uh, clear up the issue and uh, encourage people to get vaccines. Well, I think what we're dealing with, Nick, you and I have alluded to this before in previous conversations. I think what we're dealing with is logic we have. versus versus emotion, right? Because if people say, you know, we've heard the <clears throat> the argument from a uh, from a religious standpoint to say, well, you know, God will protect me, you know, <clears throat> and and what we think, you know, when, traditionally when we think of religion. I think we, we look at it as a, a point where, you know, it's our, our obligation to whatever faith we're, we're participating in um, to try to better ourselves as individuals and to try to protect our mind and protect our bodies and be civic-minded and contribute to our communities. And that's certainly what the vaccine is about, right? So that, that argument, if it's just strictly from that angle, doesn't, you know, really hold up. And the other piece of it is a, a large number of people who are objecting to vaccines have previously received them in their lives. Uh, you know, as children or uh, or as adults or, uh, you know, for job-related uh, issues. So, you know, it's a strange thing to try to argue logically. And I think we argue, you know, we're looking at people having emotional reactions. And I'm not going to tell you that they're wrong because just because somebody chooses not to get the vaccine doesn't make it wrong. All we're trying to advocate for is the science 
and the good intent behind it and the fact that, you know, over well over 100 million Americans have gotten the vaccine uh, and the ill effects have been such a, a small, small percentage of people that, you know, I think it's proven to be both, you know, efficacious from a protective standpoint and a smart thing to do. But again, it, it is a personal choice and we have to respect that going forward. Yeah, some of the uh, concerns that we have about the vaccine, uh, well, we're, we're still watching it. Uh, the coronavirus is still there. The uh, One of the, the terms that we hear now is breakthrough infection. People who have been vaccinated and are fully vaccinated after their wait period, they still come down with uh, coronavirus. What, what do we know about the breakthrough type of infection? Well, I can tell you here in Cuyahoga County, the numbers are very low. I would say probably at the last time I looked um, from cases that we document through our Board of Health, uh, the number was, I believe, less than 20. So it's a very small group of people. Um, but we do know that some of the people have um, required hospitalization. So it's a very strange thing. Um, you know, And I truthfully have not studied it enough to give you a more informed opinion, um, but we just we do know that what this brings forward is, um, you know, people who feel better wearing masks, you know, even if they've been vaccinated, you know, that's a whole other question that I'm sure you and I will address. But you know, it brings forward the thought that there, you know, there may be validity to wear masks at times just to prevent transmission. So it's it's a very unusual thing, and and I wish I could tell you more about it. I just don't know more about it at this time. Well, maybe next time we, we talk, we can maybe look at some of the things in common that those 20 people who suffered or experienced breakthrough infections of COVID uh, have, if anything, or is it totally random, uh, would, would be kind of interesting, like more female than male or people having some comorbidities that they've had to, to begin with. Well, yeah, uh, certainly. I'll look, well, I'll look into that and see what I can find out. Would you? Yeah, it's still going to be in the news uh, and, and keep us going. But, uh, yeah, the, this COVID thing is not going away. However, just uh, being around and about during this past week, there seems to be a uniform sense of exuberance that we're past the worst of it. And the pandemic uh, may be ending at this point. But uh, we're talking to Kevin Brennan. He's the uh, communications officer for the Cuyahoga County Board of Health, and he's updating us on what's going on with COVID-19 here in Cuyahoga County. We'll be back after these words. Don't go away. You're listening to Nick Phillips here on WHK, The Advocate. We'll be right back. Nick Phillips with you with another segment of The Advocate with Kevin Brennan from the Cuyahoga County Board of Health. Kevin, as always, thank you so much for helping us understand what's going on here in Cuyahoga County with COVID. My pleasure, Nick. Thank you again for having me. As, as we're talking about the, uh, the presence and how much COVID is still around, it, it's still around even though we've been having vaccinations now for several months. Uh, what are the surveys showing as far as the trends with regard to the rate per 100,000? We're seeing those numbers go down, uh, thankfully, Nick. Um, and with a little bit of uh, significance here 
from the previous week. We just um, we will be posting uh, our new summary, and it shows that we are now at 186 cases per 100,000 residents uh, in Cuyahoga County. Previous week, we were at 216 cases uh, per 100,000. So that's a, that's a significant drop. We hope that we can stay with that. Uh, to kind of partner with that, we've also seen our daily um, number of lab-confirmed and probable cases per day decrease, moving from 118 uh, last week per day to 96 per day this, uh, this week. So, again, that's, that's a significant drop, and we hope we can continue that. Are people still dying here in Cuyahoga County from COVID? Yes. Six new deaths were reported uh, during last last week, uh, or I'm sorry, during this week, and which was a decrease from 15 the previous week. So that's also an encouraging sign. Uh, when we look at the total number here in terms of Cuyahoga County, uh, excluding the city of Cleveland, of course, because they have their own health department, we are now at a total number of 1,576 uh, confirmed fatalities due to COVID in Cuyahoga County. And the daily and weekly rate is still declining, which is very good news. It certainly With is. With regard to I, the, the um, I guess the gold standard we're looking for is to reach herd immunity. And as the vaccinations still continue to be, uh, be given, we're, um, I, I assume we're slowly but surely reaching that, that level. And once we get there, and as we're evolving to that lo- that area, uh, I see the the society is moving and opening up a lot more. Restaurants are opening, baseball parks are opening, and so forth. How are we doing percentage-wise of those vaccinated uh, from the uh, national level, state level, and, and here in Cuyahoga County? Well, nationally, uh, if I recall correctly, I looked a few days ago, and it was nearly 38% nationally of um, the eligible population who had completed uh, a series of vaccinations, meaning they got their first and second dose. Uh, I think, as I mentioned previously, state of Ohio is around 43% or so. Here in Cuyahoga County, uh, the number of people who have started vaccine is right about 47%. The number of people who have completed both first and second dose is about 40%. So when we're talking about herd immunity, Nick, um, we have a a very long way to go uh, because I think medically we've heard doctors say anywhere from 75 to 90 percentile is what we need for herd immunity. Um, So we we being at 40% here in Cuyahoga County, that tells you we have quite quite a ways to go yet. Looking at trending toward herd immunity, besides being vaccinated, uh, people who've had it and have antibodies, do they count toward herd immunity? They would. I think the debate there comes from um, the medical community, you know, trying to figure out how long are those antibodies effective. Uh, Again, we've heard everything from three months to nine months. Uh, So, uh, you know, I don't. I don't know what uh, they'll eventually land at, but then that spurs the discussion on, you know, do we need booster shots? Uh, So that's another thing. I'm sure if you and I continue to talk about the pandemic as we get closer to fall and winter, there will be some determinations made about that as well. I've been hearing they've been uh, anticipating probably booster shots needed. They're not quite sure when, uh, how long after the initial inoculation. But 
Uh, as far as continuing to get the uh, vaccine in the arms of people, uh, you, you've been focusing on uh, what you've been calling equity focus. What, what is that, and how are you solving that at the community level? We have a, we have a statistic that we're provided, which is called a social vulnerability index, or an SVI. And what that does is that indicates to us a number of things in terms of demographics that can lead us to, you know, probable conclusions about the health status of an area. Those will include income, education, vaccination rates, number of children, um, you know, a lot of different, a lot of different infant mortality. So a lot of different statistics that that make that uh, make up that SVI. So we look at the communities in our county in our jurisdiction. Uh, we fall close to uh, the numbers that are, you know, it's kind of warning signs under that SDI platform. And so what we're trying to do is concentrate on working with municipal leaders, um, faith-based leaders, volunteer organizations to try to recruit people and get a real feel for, you know, what the hesitancies are that people have and then what viable options we could provide them for vaccine. Uh, because we know there are a lot of issues that people face. I mentioned the time management thing before in terms of responsibilities and jobs. You know, and a lot of people have issues with, um, you know, transportation. Uh, people are homebound. So there are different reasons why people have not been able to get the vaccine, even though it's very widely available now. So we're trying to get into those, uh, those areas and enter those discussions and see how we can be helpful. Uh, a couple of the groups that we've worked with, which have been great, <clears throat> particularly on the east side, um, has uh, been a group called NOAA, um, Northern o Northeast Ohio Alliance for Hope, a group called Vision for Ch Vision of Change, and then the Cleveland Clergy Alliance. The three of those groups have been very instrumental in helping us recruit people and provide rides and provide information and education for people, um, you know, who they feel would benefit from getting the vaccine. Can we approach this earlier talking about political uh, arguments that uh, support the hesitation that we've been seeing. Uh, and, and some of the arguments we're hearing is that there are healthcare workers who are, are not uh, being vaccinated because of their distrust or lack of proof that this is a, a viable type vaccination. Uh, what, what's the official response to people who are, are basically telling those stories? Well, I think what, what's been indicated through some data has been that, um, you know, there's hesitancy uh, among that community. And when we look at um, the numbers across the board, I think, nationally, um, <clears throat> the, the people who are more inclined to get vaccine um, have a higher education level and sometimes a higher income level. Uh, so when we look at sectors of, of job, uh, job areas where people don't make a lot of money, so that can be food service workers, that could be long-term care workers, uh, that could be healthcare workers. People who do jobs for what are considered lower wages, you know, oftentimes they don't have enough information. Uh, they don't feel that uh, they can trust, you know, they don't have, you know, faith in the entities that are providing the vaccine. Um, so to counter some of that, what we've tried to do is, as I mentioned before with our community clinics, we've tried to work with, uh, you know, some people who have requested that we come to them to try to provide a higher level of comfort for the people who would attend the clinics. One of those places was the Parma Islamic Center. Um, they are located on West 130th Street in Parma, 
And we have been uh, in conjunction with Neighborhood Family Practice, which is a, a federally qualified healthcare provider. Uh, we've been to that facility three or four times to provide vaccine. It's been a great partnership. We've provided vaccine for hundreds of people. Um, so that's just an example of, you know, once we get down to it and we, we find out where people are more comfortable, if we provide them, uh, you know, a platform for the vaccine, oftentimes we get good results. So we're going to be seeing a continuation of the distribution of the vaccine uh, for the next number of months yet, and we'll just have to watch and see what happens. Uh, the uh, lottery will still go on with regard to that uh, million dollars for taking the vaccine. We'll see how that works. And uh, what do you anticipate happening in the next uh, couple of months here? Well, I, I know that we're going to, you know, do our best to try to provide, you know, as much education and as much awareness as we can um, to people as, as far as in, still encouraging them to, to get the vaccine. Um, you know, we're involved um, with some radio campaigns. We've been talking with a group um, that uh, it deals with um, the foundations and a bunch of uh, community partners here in, in the community. And we're trying to get all those people aligned so that we can, uh, you know, spread consistent messaging so that we can get to the communities, you know, that, that uh, don't have as much access as I described before. So we're trying to just create a larger partnership, one, to make sure that we don't duplicate efforts, and two, to make sure that we're capturing as much as we can. So I think that's really our goal. Oh, very good. Excellent, excellent. Well, Kevin Brennan, thank you so much for joining us uh, again and updating us. And hopefully we're going to continue to talk to you over the months ahead until we get to the final happy ending of this COVID-19 thing. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. And we're going to take a short break. We'll be back after these words. Don't go away. You're listening to Nick Phillips here on WHK, The Advocate. We'll be right back. Cleveland, Nick Phillips with you with another segment of The Advocate. In the final two segments, we're going to be welcoming a new sponsor to The Advocate, Dr. Kenneth Wolnick, whose office is in Parma Heights on York Road near Pearl. And uh, we're going to talk about what it's like being a dentist and practicing dentistry during this COVID pandemic. Dr. Wolnick, thank you for joining us, and thank you so much for being a sponsor of The Advocate. Well, thanks, Nick. I'm uh, glad to be a part of the show, and I'm glad to be here tonight. Well, thank you so much. And uh, like everyone else, uh, your facet of our lives, being a dentist, was affected like everyone else with the pandemic that we've had for the last almost year and a half now coming up. But uh, tell us about it. What, what, what kind of um, safe way was there to practice dentistry w with taking into consideration COVID? Well, that's a great question, Nick. Um, Last year, our business was shut down like many other businesses were when the pandemic started. Um, and there was a lot of fear um, because nobody really understood the disease and we didn't really understand what was, was going to happen. So the CDC wanted everyone to take a step back and 
kind of reorganized to see what was, was going to happen going forward. So dental offices in particular were remanded to only seeing patients who needed emergency care. And that was defined basically as treatment that would mitigate pain, you know, so like root canal therapy, possibly tooth extraction, but they were really concentrating on trying to minimize the amount of aerosols that were produced during uh, dental treatment. So you fast forward through that, that eight week time period. And when we were given the green light to come back to the office, the Ohio state dental board in conjunction with the centers for disease control developed a list of best recommendations for uh, safe operation as we return to practice. So, um, we were given uh, some tools to use in terms of screening patients to reduce the potential for exposure in the office. Um, we were given a new list of universal protective gear that they w- wanted us to start wearing. Uh, that included the, the use of face shields and um, other types of coverings to you know, reduce uh, skin exposure. Uh, some offices introduced HIPAA filters and other types of collection units to grab the aerosols that were generated from the, the drills. Um, so there were several things that we put in place to increase safety, make sure that the dental health care personnel were protected as well as the people that we were treating. Did you have any difficulty getting the personal protection equipment that you needed? Did did that interfere with treating patients and having people come in? Actually, it it did. Um, As you know, there was a run on all personal protective equipment once the, the pandemic started. So things like gloves and face masks, um, hospital-grade germicidals, all of those were in very high demand. And we were actually seeing, you know, industries outside of healthcare were now using these types of protective measures when they had never really needed them, you know, before. And it was, it's not uncommon to go to the grocery store and see, you know, those personnel masked up you know, gloved up maybe with, with glasses and, and taking extra time to wipe the carts down and, you know, keep the, the store safe. So we did have difficulty securing the protective gear that, that we needed. And obviously the CDC was grabbing a lot of that available gear and holding it in abeyance for, you know, hospitals and other frontline healthcare personnel to make sure that they were protected as, you know, COVID patients were being seen in the hospital setting. When when you were uh, finally equipped with the proper PPE and seeing mm-hmm. patients again, uh, did you feel that for you and your staff that it was actually safe to be dealing with the general public who's coming in and, and may or may not have been infected? And that's before there was a vaccine or or any type of medical protection other than the PPE? Uh, correct. You know, 
the way that I, I brought my staff back was I started seeing patients about a week or 10 days before I brought the, um, the rest of the, the staff into the office. And I would say for that first couple of days, um, it did feel a little odd knowing the severity of the disease at that point in time. But I got to say that after we had a chance to, to get in there and start working, each day we all got more comfortable with, with what we were doing. We really felt that the protocols that we put in place were protecting, you know, myself, my staff. And at the same time, we were protecting the people that, you know, came in to see us, uh, you know, make sure that, that we were able to keep them healthy. And I, I also have to say that the response from the patients in our office was remarkable. Um, we had a lot of people that were, you know, 100% supportive of the modifications that, that we had to make. Um, the patients were very eager to, you know, continue coming in for, you know, their, their treatments. Uh, and some of them even, even told us that their visit to my office was one of the few places that they were willing to venture out of their house to, to go to, you know, and that actually makes me feel you know pretty good because the patients were the ones that were telling us that they felt safe, they felt secure, they felt protected, and it made them very comfortable coming in to, to see us. Well, I, I felt uh, that way too. You're almost paranoid. Uh, defining paranoia as having the unreasonable fear of danger or something bad happening. But, uh, you know, with what we were looking at, the pandemic, especially in the early days, that, that wasn't unreasonable fear. It was real fear that I felt just going to a supermarket, looking at people suspiciously that they might be infected and might be uh, giving it to us. So I'm, I'm assuming a whole lot of people, a lot of patients, put off their routine dental checks uh, because of the pandemic for this past year. Are they starting to come back now? Yes. I would say that the majority of the folks that, you know, we care for in, in our office, they were fairly consistent even last year with keeping their their appointments. Now, I would say probably about a third of the patient base that, that we treat elected to delay or, you know, completely cancel their, their appointments. And kind of like you were saying, you know, they had very real fears about uh, the nature of the pandemic. They were concerned about their potential for exposure. And I kind of felt like those those fears were, were justified. You know, everybody had their, their own approach to, you know, trying to process what was going on, not just here in Ohio, but, you know, just in the world in, in general. And, you know, we tried to be as accommodating as, as possible to let people know that we were available if they needed us and at the point which they felt, you know, comfortable coming back that we would welcome them with open arms and hopefully, um, you know, we'd be able to get them back on track because at that point in time, nobody really knew how long this process was going to take. Mm-hmm. No, that, that is for sure. I know that... Uh... Many people thought initially this might be a month or so, 
maybe even a couple of months or several months. But I don't think any of us uh, seriously thought this was going to be a situation for over a year. And I'm thinking from a standpoint of what dentistry is like, at least from a patient's standpoint, is that being a patient, uh, the, the idea of dental maintenance and dental hygiene and coming in to see the hygienist periodically to have your teeth cleaned and, and so forth is a big deal to keep your teeth healthy and everything. So I would think that as people were putting off coming into the dentist, that uh, they may have been developing sort of neglect-related type dental issues that maybe you're starting to see now. But uh, we're going to come back. We're talking to Dr. Kenneth Wolnick, a dentist who's a new sponsor here of The Advocate. We're very thankful of that. But we're talking about dentistry and what you need to know about being a patient during the pandemic and the COVID times. We'll be back. We're going to take a short break. You're listening to Nick Phillips here on The Advocate. Don't go away. Welcome back, Cleveland. Nick Phillips with you with our final segment of The Advocate for tonight. We're uh, welcoming our new sponsor, Dr. Kenneth Wolnick, a dentist here in the Cleveland area. And we're talking tonight about COVID-19 and dental problems that might be related to it. So, Dr. Wolnick, again, thank you for joining us. Thanks, Nick. I'm glad to be here. You know, uh, as we were talking in the last segment about uh, COVID and delays of coming in for dental treatment, are you starting to see people coming back who have delayed dental treatments for this past year or most of that past year and are having delayed related problems that are maybe a little worse now than they would have been otherwise? Yes, we are starting to see people uh, cycle back into the, the practice. Um, you know, we're doing our best to reach out and let them know that it's, that it's safe. And if they've been a little bit late getting their, their teeth cleaned, um, you know, that we have appointments available to, you know, to bring them back in. Um, but we are starting to see some issues, you know, that developed over the, the course of the last year. Uh, and among those are an increase in the number of broken teeth that we're seeing, you know, issues with cracked teeth. And we are starting to see really a pretty big increase in the number of folks who are reporting problems with their, their jaw joints. Um, I think is we were all under a tremendous amount of stress over the last year, you know, not just because of the, the pandemic, but, you know, obviously there were things going on with the election and, and uh, a lot of other external stressors, you know, maybe some uncertainty about work future and, you know, being able to, you know, get your basic needs to sustain your life, like food and, you know, clothing and, mm-hmm. and personal care needs. Um, as the stress levels increase, one of the ways that human beings tend to, to process that is through increased clenching and, and grinding. And some of the problems that develop because we see more clenching and grinding are issues with cracked teeth and broken teeth and, and pain in the, the jaw joints. You know, if those teeth aren't repaired quickly and they're just let go, uh, I would assume things get worse. How badly can that go if, if people have these problems and they're still not coming into their dentist? You know, that's a great question. Um, teeth that crack and break, unfortunately, 
usually end up with either a root canal or possibly an extraction. You know, there are times where teeth break in ways that we simply cannot repair them. And once that becomes a reality, then the alternative is really to remove the, the tooth, possibly replace it with an implant or a bridge or some other you know, type of removable appliance. Those untreated illnesses lead to increased cost, increased pain. You know, sometimes it becomes more of a, an inconvenience you got to take more time off work to come in and, and get uh, get that taken care of. So any preventative measures go a long way towards reducing those those bad outcomes. Wow. Well, when, when you're telling me about bad out, outcomes, beside pain, which, which people think about when they think of root canals uh, and, and things like that, we're talking about the cost. Um, uh, last I, I heard, I thought root canals were in the neighborhood of around a thousand to fifteen hundred, and uh, implants around what three, four thousand or more per. Is, is that fairly accurate? That's actually a pretty good estimate. Um, I think for this this market, you can see those those treatment fees approach those those numbers, you know, regularly. And one of the um, the problems that you run into is that most people's dental benefit plan is capped somewhere between a thousand and two thousand dollars. So you often do not see as much help from your, you know, your dental benefit as you would if it was medical insurance. They just don't work the mm-hmm. same the same way. Well, if there are people out there who are listening who haven't seen their dentist for a year or so, what would you tell them? You know, I think that the best course of action would be to try to get in to see a dentist as as quickly as possible. I know that there is a tremendous demand for dental care right now, and many practices are very busy trying to catch up the things that we alluded to earlier in the, the broadcast with people who are now just getting back into their, their routine care. So we are seeing a greater demand for our services than we would in maybe non, non-pandemic times, which is kind of a unexpected. You know, you would, you would think that maybe people would be still kind of hunkered down and, and not really ready to, to venture out yet. But I know that there are are several practices in the Cleveland area that are, are really very busy right now because we're seeing this this demand now to catch up for you know things that, that people let slide. Well I, I know and as I mentioned several times we're very appreciative of you being a sponsor of the show. But uh, tell us about how would you describe your practice? What are, what are the things you do routinely and things that you somewhat specialize in? I like to focus my care on cosmetic rehab treatments for people who have either worn their teeth down or lost teeth over time where they're trying to restore their their function. Um, You know, we see people who maybe don't like their smile because 
their upper front teeth have been damaged over time, if they're chipped or cracked or broken, or if they've had some extensive dentistry done where maybe things don't match as well as they would like anymore. So we go through a, a diagnostic process to try and show somebody potentially what their smile could look like if they went forward with, with treatment. And for a lot of those folks, that can actually be a very transformative experience where we've actually seen people come out of their their shell where maybe they were a little bit more introverted because they were afraid to, you know, to smile or if they thought that somebody might make a, a judgment about them because their their teeth were were damaged or, or what have you. And then we're able to transform that, fix their teeth, give them a functional smile that, that's beautiful, that they're proud of, that they're happy with. And then all of a sudden you get this, this really amazing person that had been hiding inside for all these, these years because they just didn't have a, a means to express themselves. And that's actually pretty powerful to, you know, share that gift with, with somebody that's, you know, trusting you to, you know, guide them through that, that journey. Mm-hmm. You know, that's not mm-hmm. to say that we, we don't handle still basic dental needs. You know, we have a great hygiene team in place. Um, we see patients that, that need all manner of, of care in our office. Um, so we try to help each person develop the smile that they're, they're proud of, the smile that they're, they're happy with, allows them to, to eat the foods that they like, to speak confidently, and, you know, show the, the world what makes them, them great. Wow. And I almost think some of that, when you talk about the transformative changes by changing someone from a lousy smile to a brilliant smile, uh, maybe you're guilty of understating the importance of it, but I've seen people who've had these changes, and it, the smile is so attached to your personality that mm-hmm. you give them the smile, and their, smile, their personality is, like, released and becomes robust. It's amazing. But uh, well, those are things. Real, real quick in our, our little time we have remaining, uh, you guys are still using PPE and still staying safe, I assume. Uh, is that working out? Absolutely. Um, my staff goes to great lengths to ensure that the, the office is properly disinfected and sanitized from, you know, one patient to the next. We are still operating on a, a reduced patient count in the office. Uh, we're trying to follow the guidelines as closely as we can to, you know, mitigate the, the potential for exposure. Um, it is physically impossible Good. to create, you know, sterility in a, a dental office, but our, our yeah, we're, we're working. Is, yep, we're doing everything we can. We're very, very, very good. Germicidals, and it, it's been good. Excellent. Well, very good. Well, Dr. Kenneth Wolnick, sponsor of The Advocate, we're so happy to have you. And thank you for sharing with us uh, how you're performing during these COVID years, COVID months. Let's hope it's not years, just months and we're almost done. So thank you very much for joining us tonight. And thank you for listening. We'll be back next week, same time, same station. So between now and then, have a safe and healthy week. Good night. And I sat and watched the